Good morning, everyone. It is a privilege to open up God's Word with you today. Please find Acts 26 in your Bibles. And I um, just want to look around and make sure there's not anybody in here who's from far away. I've had some pastor friends in town this morning, and I, wanted, I had some people from Canada. We we're, we're having a pastor's conference this next three days. And uh, am I missing anyone? Is anyone here from far away? Well, hello to all of you. Glad you're here, okay, however far you went. Um, well, let me ask you a question as we begin. Has anyone ever called you crazy because of your faith in Christ? Has anyone ever said you're crazy because of what you believe about Jesus? And have they ever made you feel less than or put down or even persecuted because of it? If so, you're in good company because that's exactly what happened to the Apostle Paul in Acts 26. I want you to take your Bibles and stand with me. I'm going to read the whole chapter, Acts 26, 1 through 32. And it is a privilege every week to open up the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God and to trust God to do something that we cannot do. Trust Him to change our lives. So we'll begin at Acts chapter 26, beginning at verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today. Against all the accusation of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light 
and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king arose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the change you bring about in a life, the cataclysmic change, the transformation you brought about in Paul's life and in many of our lives. And I pray, Lord, that you would have your way in our hearts today as by your spirit, through your word, you, you make changes in our hearts that you would even press reset on some things in our lives that, that need to be reset and that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged. You convict us where we need to be convicted. Lord, we, we ask that you would be glorified and honored and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So here is Paul testifying to both small and great. Here is Paul the prisoner speaking to servants, speaking to king. And he was courageous as he testified. And I don't know about you, but many of us today have problems when it comes to testifying the grace of God and Christ in our lives. We have problems when it comes to sharing our faith in Christ. I'm not sure what your problem is or what the biggest problem for you is. Maybe it's being a secret disciple hiding out incognito, not wanting to, to have anyone know your identity as a believer. Maybe it's a silent disciple. Maybe you, you have let people know you're a Christian, but you don't want to talk about it. Maybe out of fear, maybe out of shame. 
Or maybe it's that you're a shrinking disciple. You, you're too caught up in the world to call people to repent and believe. You, you want them to know you're a Christian and you want to speak about Jesus, but you never, you never call for the question. And all I know, and I think we should be really honest with each other, I, I battle with every one of these things. I know we all do. We battle with being secret disciples. We, we do battle with fearing man. We do battle with being so worldly that we never have gospel conversations. But I'm also one of those that believes that when we get in front of the word of God and we are under the word and we trust God to do what only he can do, God changes things. He changes things in our hearts. Those changes are seen in our lives and in our homes and in the church and out into the community. We can all attest by give testimony to the fact that God has changed things in our lives. Now Paul did not just talk about giving a good testimony. He lived it. He doesn't just tell us what to do. He shows us. They say that a picture is worth a thousand words, where we have a very crystal clear picture here in Acts 26. Paul wasn't discriminating against people. He wasn't profiling people. He was testifying both small and great. No matter who it was, if it was a live person in front of him, he wanted to know Jesus. And here's the point I want you to see today out of this passage. That God helps you testify courageously for Christ. God helped Paul testify courageously for Christ. God can help me and you testify courageously for Christ. Agrippa is here asking him, because he'd been so courageous in his testimony, Agrippa says, are you trying to convert me right now? How dare you, basically? How dare you try to convert me right now? And the answer, of course, is yes, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. This is what I'm trying to do. Paul's like, this is my mission in life. Of course I'm going to do this. Yes, Agrippa, not only you, but everyone who hears me right now, servant or king, I want you to come to know Jesus. I want you to repent and believe. Paul wasn't afraid to have that conversation. And we're going to see the pathway God took him on to get there. We've been going verse by verse through the book of Acts, and now we're in chapter 26, and Acts is volume two of a history of the early church written by Luke, the continuing story of, of Christ's work through his witnesses for his sovereign purposes. Acts traces the gospel's growth, first in Jerusalem, chapters one through eight, then, chapters 9 through 12, on into Judea and Samaria. And then from chapter 13 all the way to chapter 28, the gospel's growth throughout the entire world. Concentric circles. From chapter 13 onward, we are following Paul's journeys. From chapter 21 on, he is a prisoner of Rome on his way to Rome. If you look at the last four or five chapters, they break down like this. He's a prisoner in Jerusalem. Chapter 21 through chapter 23. Then he's a prisoner in Caesarea, chapter 24 through chapter 26, where we are today in 26. And then, chapters 27 and 28, he's on the journey to Rome, and he finally gets to Rome. We're in the midst of a section here, really, that started at chapter 25, verse 13, goes all the way to, to the end of chapter 26, where Paul is unashamedly unapologetically trying to convert people. He says it. I, I want you to become a believer. 
Now, in chapter 25, we saw that Paul appealed to Caesar. He used his legal right as a citizen of Rome to appeal to the Caesar, who at that point was Nero. And Nero at that point wasn't as bad as we know him to be. There's total depravity on display because he got worse. Okay? And we saw in that chapter that sometimes drastic times call for drastic measures. Paul took a drastic measure in appealing to Caesar, and we see that sometimes God uses the appropriate exercise of legal rights in the cause of Christ. He does here. So we're in the midst of this, and, and what we saw in chapter 25 is that appearances can be misleading. We know this true, to be true. We look at the outward appearance, we make judgments, uh, God looks at the heart. And here in chapter 25, you've got the pomp and, and, and grandeur of Agrippa and Bernice coming into Caesar's, uh, into the praetorium in Caesarea. And the word for pomp there in chapter 25 is fantasia. They were living in a fantasy world. They were out of touch with reality. And here is what is happening. They are momentarily crossing paths with a Holy Spirit indwelt, Jesus-loving, gospel-preaching servant of Christ, the Apostle Paul. And Paul courageously testifies to Agrippa and anyone else who will listen. He kept the mission of Christ in mind. Last week we saw a beautiful picture of how Jesus' singular focus on his mission leads us to worship him more fully. How Jesus was fully committed to his mission and how he keeps his sheep. If you're a believer in Jesus, you are secure forever in Christ. And how he modeled living with the mission in mind. And so Paul latched onto that and Paul embraced it fully. He is living with Christ's mission in mind. Paul the prisoner give six testimonies. This is one of them, all responding to false accusations. He's the prisoner of the Lord. He is on trial in Caesarea in the Praetorium, and he's got Agrippa saying to him, are you trying to convert me? This was his purpose, the praise of God's glorious grace. Luke 24, 46 tells us that we are to go into all the world and preach the gospel. This is what Paul is doing. This is what we need to do. The commission was very clear in his mind Last Sunday night, we had a Grace Bible Institute where we, we focused on the theology of work, rediscovering the, the doctrine of vocation, which was one of the, the foundation points of the Protestant Reformation. And that every day in a believer's life is a missions trip. Wherever God has you, whatever roles and responsibilities God has given you, out into the world. And that there is no sacred, secular dichotomy for a believer, but there is the overarching call, overarching call of God on every Christian's life that is summed up perfectly in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus said, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Every believer in Jesus is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And those concentric circles that you really see as the outline of the book of Acts. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Take someone like me that was about 20 years old when they got saved, and I was living in Downey, so it would, I would apply that this way. From Downey to L.A. and Orange County to out through America and to the ends of the earth. Those concentric circles. What I want you to see here in Acts 26 today are three scenes, and they break down very nicely in these 32 verses that illustrate 
a courageous testimony for Christ. And really a pattern that we can look at and learn from. Verses 1 through 23, Paul recounts his testimony. Verses 24 and 25, Festus interrupts and ridicules Paul. Right in the middle of his testimony. And then verses 26 to 32, Agrippa rejects Christ. This is what we're seeing today, and we're going to start right here in verse 1, where Agrippa is giving Paul permission to speak. Paul recounts his testimony, and he gives three parts to his testimony, three parts that should find their way into your testimony. First, he gives his life before Christ, what he was like before he became a believer. Second, his conversion to Christ, how God saved him, how Jesus saved him. And third, his life in Christ, his life as a believer. These are the things that we should bring into our testimony. But verse 1, Agrippa gives Paul permission, and no one's there to accuse Paul, so Paul gets to speak for himself, and Paul starts by stretching out his hand. Now, I'm Italian, and I use my, my arms and my hands a lot, but this was a common gesture signifying the start of his speech. So he's raising up his hand, starting his defense, and he, you'll notice he speaks on a very personal level. He acknowledges his spiritual background, he acknowledges Agrippa's spiritual background, and he's very courteous, he's very polite and respectful. Verse 2, he says, I'm very fortunate to make my defense before you, King Agrippa. Verse 3, you're an authority on all the customs and controversies of the Jews, so I beg you, listen patiently, please. Here's Agrippa, who is Jewish, also had unwavering allegiance to Rome. Paul might have been thinking he might be sympathetic to the message, he might be an objective observer, he might be unbiased, he might be open to the gospel. I might have one on the line here. It's like when you're fishing and you feel that little tug and you're, you don't want to scare the fish away, so you kind of wait and you want the fish to grab the hook all the way and then you can set the hook. And so Paul begins, verse 4, and he tells his life before he was a believer. And he's going to give some really good common ground here with his listeners. He says, everyone knows my way of life since I was young. All the Jews know about me. Verse 5, they'll know, and if they will admit, they'll know I have lived as a Pharisee. The strictest part of our religion. He uses a double superlative, which we're not allowed to use in English, but he uses it in, 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 in that time, and he says, basically, the, I'm part of the most strictest sect of Judaism, the most legalistic, the most zealous. Um, he's a strict right-wing Pharisee. He says, they know. They know. He patiently explains his background, and he says in verse 6, I'm on trial because of the hope that God promised our fathers, the coming Messiah, the kingdom of, of Christ. He says in verse 7, our, our 12 tribes, Israel hopes to attain to that promise. They earnestly worship night and day, and they're earnestly wrong because they're missing Jesus. He says, this is the hope for which I'm accused, king. He declares his ultimate hope in Christ, his ultimate trust in Christ. Verse 8, he's saying, the very people that should believe this don't. He says, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? They're condemning him for believing the resurrection, the great hope of the Jews. Paul cried out in chapter 24, verse 15, I'm on trial for the resurrection. He's challenging Agrippa about his reasons for rejecting truth. Paul told the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain. It's useless, and so is your faith. 
There is no Christian faith without the resurrection. Be very clear. Verse 9, Paul says, um, I was convinced I had to do a lot of things against Jesus. I had to do a lot of bad things against believers in Jesus. Verse 10, I locked up a lot of Christians in jail in Jerusalem. And when they were put to death, now he's referring to Stephen, and others. History is silent about the others. But he says, when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. Literally, I threw my pebble against them. It was the custom of of voting with colored pebbles. Paul saw Christians, before he came to know Christ, as a cancer that was eating at at the core, the vitals of Israel's life, that they needed to be eliminated. So he wanted to eliminate Christians. Verse 11, I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. This was one of his goals. Not that he would kill them, but he would get them to be apostate, that he would get them to reject Christ, and he wasn't very successful at it. Believers in those days preferred punishment and imprisonment and even death to denying Christ. He says, in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. What he is doing is he admitting how sinful he was. By the way, if you're a believer and you say, you know, when I became a believer, I just got a little bit better, I was already a good person, then you misunderstood the gospel and you misunderstood the depth of your depravity. You misunderstood the fact that you were under the wrath of God because of your sin and your sin caused the wrath of God to fall on Christ at the cross. Paul was under no illusions that he was a good guy that was made better. And this was a Pharisee. He said, I am the worst of sinners. He knew he was horribly opposed to the gospel. Some of you, if you became a believer early on as a a young person, maybe even five years old, you might say, well, I, I wasn't really that bad. But you do grasp how bad your sin is. Me, I was... 20 years old when I became a believer, and so I knew how bad my sin was. I could tell you stories. I won't. We're going to keep it about Paul here. But he tells of his conversion to Christ, verse 12. He says, here's how, here's how it went. I was going to Damascus with the authority and permission of the chief priest. He was doing something that people were applauding him for. And then verse 13, at noontime. I don't know if you remember the time and the day exactly of the day you became a believer. I don't. Paul did. It was noontime, and I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun. You're not supposed to look right into the sun. It'll hurt your eyes. And and he says, the light's shining all around me and my traveling companions. You know, God struck him down blind right then. Verse 14, we we fell to the ground. The Italian artist Caravaggio had um, painted a picture of the conversion of, of Paul and the picture is a, it's kind of a tight picture with a horse and soldier and Paul just on the ground on his back looking up. Well, the Bible tells us that they all fell to the ground. And then Paul says, I heard a voice, verse 14, speaking to me in Hebrew. Why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. This is the third retelling of Paul's testimony in the book of Acts and we get some new information. It's the only place where we see it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, on a technicality, there are actually four retellings of Paul's conversion in, in Acts. We just don't have it in print. We have a reference to it. Paul was first a, a brand new believer, 
in, in Acts 9, you, you'll notice him going to, to Jerusalem, and he wants to associate with the, the disciples, and they don't believe he's a, he's a Christian. They just don't believe the story. And they're like, we heard about this guy. He's a bad guy. And Barnabas comes in and gives his testimony, and the church accepts him. But here, he hears from Jesus, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. That's an ox goad. It's a sharp stick-like object that makes the, the animal go where you want it to go. It was used by keepers of livestock, such as oxen, to prod the animal as it's yoked to the wagon or other farm implement. Now, the animal does not like being jabbed with a sharp stick. Who would, right? And so the animal would kick back against it. But the kicking was useless. The animal learned to submit to the farmer rather than they get the painful goad. It's like, you can do this the hard way or the easy way. You're going to get the goad or you're going to go where I want you to go. Ecclesiastes 12.14 says, the words of the wise are like goads. What Jesus is telling Paul here is it would be useless for him to keep resisting what he had done at the cross. Jesus is saying, it's going to be my way. I've chosen you. Paul answers, verse 15, who are you, Lord? And I love it. He said, the Lord said. Now it's his Lord. Jesus is his Lord. Jesus said, this is red letters here, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Verse 16, I am here to appoint you a servant and witness of me. He is appointing Paul a servant. He is pointing back to the prophecy of Isaiah 42 of the servant of the Lord who would be a light to the Gentiles. Jesus came in fulfillment of that prophecy. He referred to himself in terms of the servant in Isaiah. But now Jesus is commissioning Paul to continue his ministry in the world as his agent, as his emissary, as his ambassador. This is the case for all believers. We are ambassadors for Christ. Jesus tells him, verse 17, I'm going to deliver you from your people and the Gentiles and then send you right back to them. Delivering you from your people and the Gentiles to whom I send you. There's Paul chosen by God, commissioned as an apostle to the Gentiles, delivered from, to send back to. He says in verse 18, to open their eyes so that they would turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, fulfilling Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, a light to the Gentiles. To open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Jesus said, I'm going to send you to open their eyes. Because unbelievers are spiritually blinded by Satan. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. From darkness to light. Light here is representing, referring to salvation. Even in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? Jesus said they're going to receive forgiveness of sins. The people I'm going to send you to, I'm going to send you to preach to them so that they would have received forgiveness of sins and a place, literally an a, um, inheritance among those sanctified by faith in me. We, we speak of justification by faith. Here is sanctification by faith, part of the picture. They're, they're justified in Christ and being sanctified, made more like Christ. Some of you say, you know, my life, 
doesn't reflect Christ very much. I really want it to, and I just don't know what kind of progress I'm making in the Christian life. And you need to be assured that if you're truly a believer, God is conforming you more and more to the image of Christ. Forgiveness, a life-changing result of salvation. Jesus has freed us from our sins by his blood, Revelation 1.5. He has given us a place, he has given us an, an inheritance that we will enjoy for eternity. Ephesians 1.11 says, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance. We have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.14 he is the guarantee of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1.18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Remember, Paul was blinded on the Damascus road. He says, the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you were not, no longer spiritually blind, but that you can see. That you would know what is the hope to which you're called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. He's, he's pointing to the sanctification by faith. Salvation comes only through faith in Christ apart from works. Paul preached it very clearly. Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by works, but through faith in Christ. We've got these two great benefits, forgiveness and sanctification. Colossians 1.13 says that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And this is how Paul tells his conversion story. You want to give a good testimony? Pack it chock full of biblical truth and deep biblical doctrine. And then he goes on to tell of his life in Christ. Verse 19, he says, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. See, Paul would not disobey instructions that he had been given directly from God. By the way, our Bibles are... Are, are, contain a lot of instructions directly from God. We ought not to disobey those. Verse 20, he says, I declared first in Damascus, then Jerusalem, and then all throughout Judea, and to the Gentiles, he's speaking to a Jewish king who hates Gentiles, to the Gentiles too, that they should what? Repent. He's preaching repentance, to turn to God and do deeds in keeping with repentance. Works fitting repentance. Because genuine repentance is linked to a changed life. Paul preached that they should repent, turn from their sins, and turn to Jesus. The gospel is a message of repentance, and not just sorrow for your sin or sorrow that you got caught, but a reorientation of your entire life around Christ and around his finished work. That is repentance. True repentance is evidenced by a changed life which means your lifestyle will change when you come to know Christ. If your life has not changed since you came to know Christ, you probably don't know Christ. Paul says in verse 21, that's why I got seized in the temple and they tried to kill me. This is why, because of the gospel. And in verse 22, he basically says, and guess what? God knows the truth and he's on my side, not yours. To this day, he says, I've had the help that comes from God, presumably Agrippa doesn't. <laughs> he says, I stand here testifying both to small and great, and I say nothing but what is in the word of God. He speaks of God's help, and he explains the facts of the gospel. Verse 23, Christ must suffer, 
being first to rise from the dead. He would proclaim light or salvation both to our people and to the Gentiles, to all nations. This is how to give a testimony of God's grace in your life. Do you wonder, what should my testimony include? Talk about what your life was like before you came to know Christ. Talk about how you came to know Christ and then talk about how God has changed your life since you've been saved. Stuff it full of biblical truth, chock full of solid theology, give a message that Christ is the Messiah, that it's proven by God's word, that it's proven by the resurrection, and that it's proven by your transformed life, that your life has been cataclysmically transformed by Jesus you were condemned in your sin just like Paul, but you confessed your sins and believed. It's like Paul saying, you know, Agrippa, 25 years ago I was just like you. Yet worse, Paul considered himself the chief of sinners. And right in the middle of this testimony, right in the middle of this amazing testimony, Festus basically breaks in, busts in, and interrupts Paul. He ridicules him. Verse 24, Paul speaking and Festus blurts out, you're crazy, Paul. You're out of your mind. You're a nutcase. Your education is driving you out of your mind. He cannot comprehend that an educated scholar like Paul actually believes the dead will live again. All Romans, all intelligent Romans rejected the resurrection. Verse 25, Paul says, I'm not crazy. You are, you know. I'm not crazy, most excellent Festus. He's actually polite. He's not rude. He's respectful. He's not angry. He says, I'm speaking true and rational words. I am speaking the truth. The gospel is objectively true. It is wise. It is the polar opposite of madness, mania, as they put it. And here's Paul, absorbing all the blows, taking all the hits. He's not easily provoked. He's, he's condemned by unbelievers for believing just like he did to believers when he was an unbeliever. And he is seeking God's help. You know, put-downs will wear you down. And, and you need God's 100% help. So did Paul. If you're in quicksand, you don't say, hey, by the way, can someone help me a little? No, you need 100% help. And help comes in the form of a rescue in, in Christ, a resurrected rescuer, and, and Jesus is there to rescue you when you realize that you are lost in sin and that you have no way to save yourself. But the Jews are hearing this message and they're going along with a lie that was perpetuated and is recorded in Matthew chapter 28. Go there. Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 13. Some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. So they're telling them about the earthquake, the angel, the empty tomb, and all of that. They're telling them about the resurrection here. And when, verse 12, when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they bribed the soldiers. You see that? And verse 13, tell the people, his disciples came by night and stole them away while we were asleep. So lies are being told about the truth and the story is spread to the Jews to this day and people are still recycling that satanic lie. The Jews rejected the rescue and here's what we see in verse 26 and, and onward. Agrippa rejects Christ. 
Paul says to Agrippa, verse 26, you know all this. I, I, I'm going to be bold with you about it, Agrippa, because this wasn't done in a corner. This was not a stealth operation. We're not a secret society. This was done in full view of many witnesses. King Agrippa, verse 27, I know you believe the prophets. And what Paul is doing is wisely painting him in a corner, putting him in a catch-22. If he admits he believes the prophets, he's going to have to admit that what Jesus did was right and his death and resurrection is true, makes him look foolish in front of his Roman friends. If he denies the prophets, he's going to outrage the Jews. Now he's in a pickle, he sees his dilemma, and he counters with a question. Verse 28, Agrippa says, are you trying to convert me right now? This is not a confession of almost becoming a Christian as is wrongly thought at times, based on the King James, by the way. The, the way they translated it into, England, into English. He's basically saying, do you think you can convince me right now to be a Christian? You gotta be kidding me, you are crazy. And he knows what Paul is doing, he knows where Paul is going, and he wants him to stop talking. You know when you're in a conversation, you're like, please stop talking? Or maybe you're in an argument, and you're like, please stop, just please stop, can we just drop it, and someone's gotta have the last word, right? Paul says in verse 29, whether short or long, I hope that all of you become Christians. All of you, not just you, Agrippa. And then I think rather comically he says, except for these chains. We won't give you these. We want you to have Jesus. His main goal was to convert Agrippa and others. He wants them to become Christians. No apology. Here's lowly prisoner, Paul, mighty in Christ. And verse 30, here's their response. They get up, they walk out. They, they turn their backs on him and they walk out. Agrippa, Festus, Bernice, everyone with them, and they leave. That's what happens. That's what happens. You've got to get used to this. This is what will happen. Sometimes people were like, you're right, I need to become a believer right now. And other times they're like, forget you. Verse 31, they leave and they, they have a little debrief. And they say to one another, this guy doesn't deserve death or imprisonment. Verse 32, Agrippa says, you know, Paul could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And we just need to remember something. Paul's not a prisoner of Rome here. He's the prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is constrained to preach the gospel. He has so much love overflowing in his heart for those yet to believe. And these three scenes here show us illustrate for us a courageous testimony for Christ. He gives his testimony, his life before Christ, his conversion, and his life as a believer. And then he gets ridiculed by Festus. And then Agrippa just blatantly, and everyone really blatantly rejects Christ. And that's the end of the story. Now you have to remember this. The reason this little trial was going on, because Festus had nothing to send to Nero. And he's like, I can't send this guy to Rome without some, you know, some juicy accusations. So even though Agrippa's saying, this guy would have been set free, he's gonna you know, write up some charges. He's gonna scribble out some you know, trumped up charges. He's gonna do something. He's going to send something to, to Caesar and say, this guy is a bad guy. And in these three scenes, this courageous testimony for Christ, uh, by way of application, I want to give you three corresponding actions that we 
ought to take as we live in Christ. Based right on what we've seen in this text. The first is this. And you remember that Paul testified courageously. The action for us is don't stay secret. Don't stay a secret disciple. Paul testified courageously. He wasn't doing this under an alias. He wasn't doing this under a pseudonym. Everyone knew who he was. Everyone knew what he stood for. He clearly identified as a follower of Jesus. But I think the challenge for us, I know it's my challenge, the challenge for us, our problem is we like to secretly follow Jesus, especially in some aspects of our life. Many times it's because we've gone so long and didn't tell anyone, and so we're thinking at this point it would spoil a lot of things, and it would probably mar Christ's reputation because they've seen some things in me. Don't stay hidden. Don't stay secret. Clearly identify with Christ. Give your testimony. Stand up as a witness. This is very common in the book of Acts. Witnesses stand up to be counted. Can't remain hidden as a believer. Now you might ask, well, are you sure? Couldn't I just remain a secret disciple? Would that be okay? Do you think God would be mad at me if I just kind of just stayed incognito, you know, wear fake glasses and a fake nose and a fake mustache? Maybe could I do that? I think the answer is no. I haven't found anywhere in the Bible where the answer would be yes. Nicodemus, remember him, he visited Jesus at night, John chapter 3, for fear of the Jews. He was the first one to ever hear John 3, 16 and 17 and 18. Heard the whole thing. Jesus eternally blew his cover by putting him in scripture. So he's got that going for him. But before that, he helped Joseph of Arimathea bury the body of Jesus. You might remember back into the Gospels that Nicodemus, after Jesus rose, uh, was dead, excuse me, died on the cross, he, uh, Nicodemus brought spices for anointing and Joseph gave him the tomb. So now their lives are on the line. They're helping out this guy who was killed on the cross. So these two secret disciples, moved by love for Jesus, come out of the shadows with Christ-like courage. They openly reveal themselves as followers of Christ. But the problem is, there's a whole lot of believers who want to fly under the radar. And only when they're around Christians will they tell people they're a Christian. Now, in one sense, there are no secret disciples. God knows those who belong to him. Humanly speaking, there are a lot of incognito Christians, again, wearing the fake nose, mustache, and glasses. And I'm convinced, I really am, that we are to be deeply engaged in the world, but not of it. But I am saddened, even by my own life, that that I am too much of it and too little in it. Jesus calls us out in Scripture. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, in this age, my Father will be ashamed of him. So you have got to find a way, I have got to find a way, in our own way, to tell others about him who is the only way, and there are many ways to do that. Let me give you a scary good action step you could do right this moment. In just a moment, I'm going to give you permission to interrupt my sermon. I'm just going to give you 10 seconds, okay? It's not going to be a long time. If you're a believer in Jesus and you have never publicly professed your faith in Christ, okay, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. But it could be that you're like, can I just believe it and not say anything about it? 
I wanted to ask you, would you be willing right now to stand up in the middle of my sermon right this moment and say, I believe in Jesus Christ? You know, anyone. I'm a Christian. I'll give you 10 seconds. If you're a believer who's never publicly professed your faith in Christ, in public, we'll start right now. Well, good. Praise God. You've all done that before. Wonderful. <laughs> Let me just say this. If you haven't and you just go, man, I just, I, my heart's beating and I didn't do it. Well, you know what? Do it later, okay? Tell someone that you're a believer. It's going to give you boldness to make the same declaration tomorrow morning in the office or tomorrow at school or wherever you find yourself. You cannot assume someone's identity as a Christian. It becomes clear as you live for him. But Christians need to come out of the shadows into the light of day and declare their allegiance to the way, the truth, and the life and risk embarrassment and risk people's shock and be identified. There are some identifications I need to make in my life. There are people I know that, that probably don't know I'm a believer. The best thing for your growth, the best thing that will keep you accountable to live what you say you believe is identifying as a believer. Don't stay secret. Number two, don't stay silent. Don't stay silent. The apostle said we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. Jesus captured their hearts and their new life found its way into their vocal cords. Your new life in Christ has got to find its way into your vocal cords. You, you need to be discontent to stay secretly, speechlessly silent. Preach the gospel always. And I do not like the quote that says, and if necessary, use words. I don't like that quote. I do not think it is biblical. Preach the gospel always, and please, please, please use understandable words. <laughs> There's my quote. And Paul says, I have the help that comes from God to this day so he could stand firm in Christ in front of the ridicule that he's getting from Festus and Agrippa and, and get the help that God only gives. You can get that help too. Paul says, Colossians 1.29, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. And I know every one of us can get pretty self-sufficient. And by the way, God helps those who help themselves is not in the Bible. It's not. Here's what is in the Bible, John 15, 5. Apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So run to Jesus with every issue on your heart. Stay strong in Jesus for him and the gospel in his strength for his glory. Psalm 121, verse 2. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. I was just listening to Exodus 33 this morning, Exodus 33, 14, one of my favorite, probably my favorite verse in all of Exodus. God says to Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. So rely fully on God's help as you humbly preach his inerrant, inspired, infallible word in wherever he gives you the opportunity. Preach it in your own heart. Preach it in your home. Preach it in the household of God. Preach it out in, the, in your, your neighborhood.
Don't stay secret. Don't stay silent. And third, lastly, don't shrink. Don't shrink from declaring anything that is profitable for a person. Paul told them, repent and believe. Paul went for the jugular. You know, Paul stuck the landing. <laughs> you got to call for a response. You got to call for a que- to the question. Call people to faith and repentance in Christ. God will help you courageously testify for Christ. There ought to be no secret, silent, shrinking disciples of Jesus. You might say, but I don't have the gift of evangelism. Good. The Bible tells a command to evangelism. Every believer has the command to evangelize. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, verse 17, he is a new creature. The old has passed away, new has come. All this is from God through Christ who reconciled us to himself. You know what reconciled means? Bring back into proper alignment. Always used of mankind, never of God. It's a ministry of, of converting enemies into friends. The dead become alive, the spiritually blind see. Paul says he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting their trespasses against them, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. And we implore you, God is making his appeal through us, and we implore you, we beg you, we beg you, be reconciled to God. You're an ambassador of Christ in a foreign land, and you're begging people to turn to God. Don't shrink from that. These were the attitudes behind Paul's actions. This is the transforming power of the gospel. Unleash it. Don't be ashamed. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's a word of reconciliation. It's a a ministry of reconciliation. And there's an urgency to the reconciliation. These are significant times in which we live and they must be met with significant effort. First century, there were about 200 million people in the world. Seems like a lot, right? The Roman Empire ruled the planet. Rome was the largest and most powerful city. 800,000 to a million residents. You had 11 apostles to try to reach 200 million. People are getting saved and there's more. By 1804, first time the population of the world went over 1 billion. Today, over 7 billion. Countless disciples. Today, the task is more urgent because we're closer to the end. Countless disciples trying to reach 7 billion. Not in their own strength, in Christ's strength. This has to be played out in a personal level, in a church-wide level, in a national level, in a global level. And I'm one of those that think, yes, it can all start with one person talking to one person about Jesus. I really do. Lives can be changed and transformed one person at a time. It is the, the, the end of January 2017, which means we have, if God gives it to us, 11 more months. And I'm just thinking about Grace Church of Orange right now. And I'm wondering what we've been known for in the past. What we've been known for. Well, you could say uh, teaching and preaching the word of God, uh, biblical leadership, and, and all sorts of good things. But why don't we be known this year, 2017, for evangelism? Why don't we get out there and preach the gospel to everyone we come in contact with and we would see a huge influx of new believers for the kingdom in Orange County and beyond? We would make disciples of Jesus. We say it every week. We we want to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. So let's do that. Show and tell your faith in Christ. Do it. Pray for opportunity. As I close, I just want to say this. You've got to find a way to communicate. You've got to find a way to communicate. You've got to have a conversation. Maybe you need to make a phone call. Maybe you need to write a letter. 
You know what that is? Piece of paper, pen, or you could type one. Luther said Satan hates the use of pens. If he was alive today, he'd add and keyboards. I know a friend who wrote a letter to a family member about coming to faith in Christ imploring this person to come to faith in Christ and that person got very angry at my friend and then 50 years later they became a believer 50 years later all I can tell you is I don't want to leave any purposeful conversation about the gospel without a call to believe I've left a lot of conversations hanging I, I, I've, I've, I've shrunk in shame many times and and I would even be remiss if right now I didn't say, if you're not a believer here today, you need to believe in the Lord Jesus. You need to believe that he died for your sins, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead, that he's coming again, and there's no other way you can save yourself. And, and, and salvation comes only through faith in Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. For you, right now, you can be saved. We have seen these three scenes illustrating courageous testimony for Christ and some corresponding actions for us to not stay secret, to not stay silent, to not shrink. Call for a response because God will help you testify courageously for Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace toward us that is not in vain. Thank you, Lord, that you call us to yourself in your irresistible grace. Thank you, Lord, for saving our souls. Thank you, Lord, for giving us a ministry of reconciliation. Lord, I pray for everyone who hears this, that we would be courageous testifiers of the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for what you will do. We pray that you will receive all the glory. In Christ's name, amen. Will you stand if you're able?